Well, good evening, everybody. I'm so glad that you have joined us. Welcome to Good Friday. We're kicking off Easter 2021, and I'm so glad to be with you. I know right now I'm coming into your home, uh, whatever that space looks like, in a kitchen, in a lounge. Um, but one thing I love is that we get to gather together. And we'll be seeing you on Sunday, live and in person and online, um, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I absolutely love Easter. It is huge. It is literally a moment that cuts human history in half. It changed my life. Everything about this weekend and what we celebrate uh, changed how I see the world, what I do and what I care about. And I just, I'm going to put all cards on the table. That's my hope, my prayer for you. I'm so glad that you've joined us. And we're going to be in the midst of an Old Testament passage. And I'll tell you why. It's in the book of Zechariah. We've been tracking uh, in the Minor Prophets. I'm sure you've been enjoying it if you've been with us. And Zechariah chapter 9 is actually a moment that speaks uh, about 500 years before the coming of Jesus of an important moment in his journey to the cross in actually kicking off Easter week. And so we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read it for, for you. We'll be from verse 9 to verse 11. It says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Why don't you pray with me and we'll get into this. Father God, we know that you speak through your word. We know that this is your truth. We know that this speaks of the coming of your son and how it completely changed human history. There is no greater uh, figure, there is no greater person in the midst of human history than Jesus Christ himself. And so we look on this day, on this Good Friday, to the story. And it's not just a story that's made up, it's a story that happened. This is an account of what really went down, and it changes everything for us, whether we have seen it yet or not. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you meet with us? We know your presence changes everything. Would you be over my words, as always? These are your words and not mine. And everybody said... Amen. Hey, uh, I, I really love this passage because it speaks of this moment. And it's such an iconic moment in the beginning of the, of the Easter story. Jesus actually does come riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And we see that actually in Matthew chapter 21. And I would love for us to, in this time, really get in, into the scene, really start to think about what did it sound like? What did it, it look like? And so why don't you watch the screen? I want to show you what it did look like. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! That's taken from Matthew chapter 21. And as it has read, this would be the last time that Jesus actually publicly enters Jerusalem like it. And it very knowingly uh, fulfills the prophecy we see as we just read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And these were, a, were prophecies of a coming Messiah, the one who would say, the one who would be sent by God to bring salvation to the world. Sin had entered the world. Uh, sin is actually just the matter of us as humanity missing the mark. We know that we struggle in our imperfection. And now we needed a savior, we needed a redeemer, we needed someone sent by God, and he wouldn't send a hero or a warrior or simply a teacher. He knew what he needed to send, and he needed to send a king. He sends his own son. And that is the the moment that Jesus uh, is getting crowned as this king who would come to bring salvation to the world. I love how Zechariah uses these words. And now Zechariah's prophecy, this is just one. There was 350 other uh, prophecies through the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus hundreds, even thousands of years later in his life, in his work, in his ministry. And I think as you look at it, what you need to understand is that These people, the Israelites at that time, had begun to construct or even create in their mind what this this Messiah would look like, what he would be about, how he would uh, enter, and how he would even accomplish the freedom that God was promising. And the truth is, we look at these people and we think, hey, how, how, how do they get at this wrong? Jesus wasn't the one who was coming as just simply a teacher. He wasn't the one who was going to come as the big war hero. What he was coming as was the king who would offer salvation to them. And we look to the New Testament and the apostles, and we see how in hindsight they had those moments. I'm sure post-Easter, post the mic drop, post uh, Jesus pulling off Easter and rising from the dead, they had those moments where they went back to things he had said and things he had done. And they said, hey, I, I, I wonder... Maybe he meant that, because in the moment, we didn't see it that way. When they heard words like this, where Jesus even would say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it up again. They might have been confused in that moment, but post-Easter, they got it. He was talking about his body. They hear things like, hey, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus was in the line of David, and so he would have been the son of David, and yet David calls him Lord. It's because he didn't come just in the lineage of David. He actually came, God himself taking on flesh. It would have been, I imagine the pennies that would have been dropping in the lives of the apostles and even us with the hindsight we have. They often say hindsight is twenty twenty. I really do believe that this is God's desire this Good Friday. I really do believe that we need to again have penny drop moments, moments where we realize, hey, maybe the way I've seen Jesus, the what I've thought about him, the, the picture I've constructed in my head, it might not be the truth of who he is. And Jesus again wants to meet us in his mercy and his love and he wants to speak to us. And so this is gonna be our plan. I've given this message the title and it's taken right from this text, your king is coming to you. 
I don't know if you're in this space and you are a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not there yet and you're just jumping in online with us. I want you to know that it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, your king is coming to you. And that king is Jesus and he has an offer of grace and mercy and love. Our plan of action, I mentioned to you that this would be the crowning moment of Jesus, that the king was coming. Zechariah is prophesying it and calling it forth. And what I want to frame it is, is actually if you imagine a coronation scene, if you imagine this coronation scene, there's often in these ceremonies, there's two important parts. There is a triumphant entrance and then there is the crowning. And the crowning is so important because we know it's not just simply this uh, bejeweled, uh, hardcore silver or gold crown that gets placed on a human head. We understand that the ceremony has far bigger power, far bigger implication than that because what it is actually doing is bestowing all power, all responsibility and all authority on that person. It's often said, heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's because we know that it's not just about a crown. It's not just about some flashy things. It's actually about what the crown represents and the power that has been bestowed on that person at that time. And so for this moment in Jesus's coronation, what I, I like to see it as his, as his coronation, we're going to look at it under these two big headings. The first one is the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. We, as we had heard about it in Matthew chapter 21, this time in Jerusalem, just to give you some context, would have been around the time of Passover, a big festival where Jerusalem would swell in capacity. Now, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Roman government who were ruling at that time. And so in this moment of swelling and the capacity of the city growing with more people around, what the Roman government would do is start to oppress more, start to close in more because they saw their moment to exploit the masses, to actually have a gain for themselves off of things like a festival like Passover. And it's in that context that the Israelites would find themselves. And so under the heaviest Roman oppression, under the heaviest exploitation of their oppressors, these Romans who were inflicting great damage on them, Jesus enters the scene. I want you to see that in the midst of it, they had this desire for freedom. In the midst of it, they were under feeling the pain and the suffering of exploitation. And so when Jesus would ride in, and he, and he would ride in as one looking like the Messiah, looking like the one who could save us, it's no shock that the people's cry is Hosanna. Hosanna actually means save us now. And so the cries of the people to Jesus are save us now. Now, what you might not know is there had been others that had come into the city in a similar way. Uh, we know later in the story, there's a guy called Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist. He, he was trying to start a rebellion against the Romans, basically taking on that messianic role, that role of the savior. He had tried and had failed. In the midst of this, in the not-too-distant past, there had been the Maccabean Revolution, basically in the, in the span between the Old and New Testament, where a similar revolution was tried and it failed. It's, it's, I start to think about it, and I, I wonder, as these people cried, Hosanna, did, did they doubt? Did they think, hey, save us, because we need it. We're feeling the suffering. We're feeling the pain. But I wonder, I wonder if you're the one. I wonder if you're the one that's going to be different and actually come through for us. You think about it also from Jesus' perspective. Jesus walks in knowing the beginning from the end. 
He knows he has, as the word says, he's turned his face like flint towards Jerusalem because he's going to the cross. He's got a mission to do. I wonder if sitting on that donkey as people were fanning him and shouting all these praises, calling Hosanna, declaring him the one who is to save. I wonder if there was just a little bit of Jesus going, this is going to be a very different scene in just a few days' time. This is going to be a scene where it will not be shouts of praise. It will be insults. It will be uh, me being dragged through the street, being spat on by these very same people. The story changes so much. And yet Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't have that thought, doesn't have that perspective. Because after this very next, in the very next scene, in the very next moment, Jesus gets into the city and he actually looks upon the city and he has a moment where he weeps for the city. He weeps for them in their pain and their suffering and has compassion on them, even though he knows what is coming. I'll take you back to that coronation scene. And I, I really do believe that entrances are important. And so this triumphal entrance was important. And I think there's, there's many things an entrance will communicate. We know if you look to popular culture, I'll take you to imagine a UFC fighter or a boxer, their entrance is important. It might look something like this guy coming in and it's communicating something saying, hey, I'm going to instill fear in you. There will be heavy rock music. It is a guy getting himself hyped up to get into war, to get into a fight, to get bloodied and bruised and get victory. It's also there to instill fear in his opponent. The big loud noise, the guy looking hardcore, being backlit as a silhouette. Entrances communicate things. And I really believe when we look to Jesus's entrance, it's going to communicate four things. The first thing it's going to communicate is that he is the joy bringer. It begins in verse 9 and says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's where it starts. The, the very first thing mentioned is joy, and it's actually a command to rejoice. It says, hey, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, even those who are offspring and finding themselves living in Jerusalem, rejoice because your king is coming to you. Now, you might sit there 2,000 years later going, Dunks, what does that have to do with us? I don't live in Jerusalem. I am not a daughter of Zion. How does that play? Very next verse, in verse 10, it actually speaks of Jesus, and this is a prophecy of his rule and reign in the future, where it says he will rule from sea to sea. And so that includes every nation on earth ever. It's not just limited to 2,000 years ago and some small little backwater Middle Eastern town. It matters today in South Africa because the future reign, the reign of Jesus, the rule and reign of him right now is that it shall run from sea to sea. And this is the king that's coming to us. And we get given this command in even how we should respond to it saying rejoice. The first jump of our heart should be to a space where we have joy. This is the truth I believe this entrance and this command is, is communicating to us. In the midst of Israel and their, their suffering, in the midst of our suffering in today's world, it's saying that, hey, beyond the truth, beyond the pain, beyond the suffering, beyond the misery of this world, understand there is a king who is coming and he will bring joy. This is why the gospel is good news. This is why uh, the story, the life, the account, the reality of Jesus matters to you because he brings joy. And I don't know if you know, but our world is so desperate for it. My heart is desperate for it. And I do believe yours is too. Second thing it communicates is that he is righteous. Very next line, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. 
This righteous actually, righteousness is actually so comprehensive because sometimes we'll limit it down to, well, it just means doing the right thing. It just means being right in every situation. But Jesus takes it a step further because he is actually God in the flesh. It is so comprehensive that it's not just he's just doing right. It's that he is completely right in every situation and he has the power. He actually can successfully stand for what is right and make things right. Some translations actually uh, don't translate this as righteous. They're actually translated as triumphant. And the reason for that is that if you go into the original language, what you find is it doesn't just mean righteous. It means that you actually, he is the one who can successfully bring righteousness to the world. It takes it such a step further. He is not created. He is creator. And when you talk about God and his righteousness and Jesus and his righteousness and what he was about to accomplish, what you can't ever separate is these two things. You can't ever separate righteousness and victory. Because for Jesus, it was through his righteousness that we can find victory. And actually in the manner, and this is where it gets so comprehensive, it's that actually uh, the way he wins is righteously. There's the manner of it. But then there is also the method of it. That actually the way he brings about that victory is in his righteousness. And that's why he is the only one who can offer to you and me his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. So that in our imperfection, in our sin, in our missing the mark, in our not getting it right, in our suffering, in our pain, in all that we do where we desire the wrong things, where we choose the wrong things, where we go the wrong places, we can give that up to Jesus and say, God, would you look at this? I know it is a failure. I know it is a mishap. I know it is a misstep. And yet I know the righteousness you have, and it doesn't just stay with you. You actually can exchange it and give it to me. It changes everything for us. Third thing is this. It communicates that he is humble and meek. It says he's humble and mounted on a donkey. The king is coming. He's powerful. He's bringing salvation. The word's very clear. But note how he comes. He comes riding in on a donkey. I don't think any of us are going to argue that that's probably a humble way to travel. Now, there's something that we might miss, and it's this, and it's one of my favorite characteristics when we talk about Jesus, because it actually speaks to a characteristic of meekness in Jesus. It's not just that he is humble, it's actually that he is meek. Even in this moment where he had all this praise, knowing that a couple days later, these people will turn against me, meekness actually is not weakness, it means strength under control. So Jesus is meek in that he has all power, all authority to literally smite anyone, and yet he will withhold it. He will walk in on a donkey, humble, because he's wanting to communicate something. As I said, some of us wouldn't argue that the donkey is a symbol of the humility. Now, we often look at it and go, listen, it's a donkey. So if we're talking on the scales, if we have to put it on its hierarchy, this thing isn't even, this is nowhere near uber black. It's not even Uber X. It might even struggle to be Uber Go. It was actually a half, a half a stolen donkey. So it might have been like the Uber Eats guy's bucky, like his little bucky with his bike on it getting stolen. That's the level we're at when we're talking about a donkey. But what I don't want you to miss, and I think we do sometimes have these little context um, mishaps uh, thousands of years later, is to know that actually donkeys in that day were not as lowly as they are in our view today. 
that actually they were a, a working animal, and so they were well regarded. And so even though it might have only been on special occasions, on, on the odd occasion, it wouldn't be weird for a king or a prince or someone in nobility to ride in on a donkey. And I think there's something so important in what Jesus was communicating, because as I mentioned, these people were waiting for their warrior king, and now this would have been wartime for them. We're under Roman oppression. You have to be the one to bring the victory. And so you could imagine the shock in the people, though, when he walks in on a donkey and not a horse. Because a horse communicates, hey, this is, this is wartime. Uh, a donkey doesn't. He comes in riding on a donkey, and that's actually a peacetime animal because it's a working animal. And Jesus does it on purpose. There's intention there. Because what he said is, I actually didn't come to bring war. I have actually come to bring my peace. He's here not to make war like they thought. Because he's going to bring them peace like they never imagined. That's the final one. It communicates that he is the peacemaker. That donkey had a purpose. It was communicating that God was going to bring peace to earth. And he would do it through the sending of his son. And this entry would begin the journey for him bringing peace to a world that so desperately needed it. He's humble. He's meek. He's not coming in wartime. He's actually coming in peacetime because he's the one who will bring it. They thought that the Messiah was here to destroy the systems of man, things like the Roman power of the day. But actually, he had come to destroy all that, uh, the power of sin and evil and man, all manner of darkness had actually inflicted on the world. He came to destroy it. He comes as a peacemaker. I'll take you back to that moment where he was weeping over Jerusalem, having compassion for them. Jesus says this in Luke 19, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. No one understood the complexity of what this entrance was communicating, the whole truth of who Jesus was and what he was about to do but they would very quickly get an idea. They thought this was just about, hey, let's make peace in, the, in this situation, in this circumstance where he's saying, listen, I'm going to make peace between you and God. Don't miss what I'm doing. I'll take you to our, our, our second heading. It moves from the entry and now goes into the crowning, the big moment, the crowning, where actually the, the monarch would receive that, uh, that power, that authority, where people would acknowledge their status and, their, and give them all honor in that space. But for Jesus, the crowning looked very different. This, this coronation scene is how the people would have imagined it. It's how it would have been communicating the status of him being this regal king who would bring everything. And yet Jesus' crowning looked very, very different. His entrance had communicated everything. And in this moment where the coronation is supposed to go down, where the power and the honor and everything is supposed to be given over, for Jesus it looks very different. I think of the crown that the people would have imagined Jesus wearing. It would have looked something like that. It would have been bejeweled. It would have had fine and precious metal. And yet for Jesus, his crown took a very different form. Because what they placed on his head was not a crown like that one. It was actually a crown of thorns. And it wouldn't be bedazzled with jewels. It would be bedazzled in his own blood. 
as he was beaten, as he was mocked, as he was tortured, and as he was eventually killed. It was a very different crown, and I don't think anyone saw it coming. I don't even think Jesus' apostles in that time would have seen it coming. And yet we find it 500 years before it all goes down in the book of Zechariah in chapter 9. It's right here in our text. In verse 11, it says, as for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you. They were well aware that covenants needed bloodshed. They had watched in the Old Testament their father Abraham make a covenant with God and he chopped three animals in half. They, they understood the sacrificial system where animals would be sacrificed, blood would be shed for the temporary covering of the sin of the people. And they looked to a time where God would provide the ultimate sacrifice, the one who would cover sin for all eternity. They were in the midst of the Passover festival where the Passover lamb was celebrated, the lamb who was spotless, who was blameless, who was blemish-free, who would be sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. But it was temporary. It was a substitute that only lasted so long. And so every single year they had to keep doing it. Jesus arrives and actually just in, within the, the lifetime of his apostles, that temple would fall. That system would fall away. There would be no more sacrifices. There have been none since then. And it was because the perfect substitute had come onto the scene. The lamb who was spotless, the lamb who was blameless, the one, the one who was blemish-free. And we think, oh, that crown was terrible. That crown was the means of our salvation. As Jesus sat there in his last moments, as Jesus looked to the crowd, as he saw them uh, mock him, as he walked up uh, this road carrying his cross, the method of his own execution, as he goes up to Golgotha, the place of the skull, as he is continually mocked and beaten and hurt and then nailed to a cross through his hands and feet, as he looks up to heaven and says a final prayer, even in that moment, his heart is for us. His heart is for humanity. Because in that moment, he says, Lord, forgive them for they know, what not, they know not what they do. Jesus' heart in the moment, Jesus' focus of that crown was that he was the one who would bring salvation. That salvation was the, uh, the power he had. He was so righteous that he could bring righteousness to you and me as the perfect substitute. Last thing I want to talk about is this. For those of you who maybe have not yet taken that step in following Jesus, I hope you have heard that the king has come to you today. The king has put his offer out. He's communicated to you that he is the one who brings joy, who brings peace, that he is the perfect substitute who can sit there and take your righteousness on him, die the death that you should be dying for in punishment for what you have done, and yet in him you can receive new life. I want to take you to one, uh, Colossians 1.20. It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you're new to the space, I want you to know that that's the offer that Jesus is giving you today. That he makes peace and it comes through the shedding of his blood. That actually in him we can have new life. That in him the old can pass away and the new can come. That in, in our old there can be unrighteousness and, and, and that fear and pain and suffering, and yet in Jesus' pain and suffering, we find 
new life. We find peace, not just with God and us, but we can find peace even in the midst of the chaos of our world. I think this moment for us on Good Friday, as we look to this passage, as we look to the significance of this prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus, I think God's message to us as a church and as a community is this, that our King has come, and have we missed the magnitude of it? We get to celebrate as they did every single year this moment, the celebration of Easter, the celebration of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And I ask the question and maybe put the challenge out, have we, have we missed the magnitude of it again? Have we missed just how amazing it was? Have we missed that this is the greatest story that all history has ever known? This is actually the only story that matters. God is saying, your king has come to you. Your king is on a throne. Your king is ruling and reigning. It says he shall speak peace to the nations, that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the king who has come to you. He comes humble. He comes meek. He comes riding in on a donkey. And yet he has all power. He has all control. He is all knowing. And he reaches out his hand to each one of us and he says, I would want for you my love, my mercy, my grace. The offer is there. Father God, I'm so struck again by the power of your word, by the power of your gospel, by the power of your good news. It changes everything for us. It changed everything, not just 2,000 years ago. It changes everything right now in 2021 on Easter weekend. Lord, it's my prayer for anyone watching this, for anyone hearing the sound of my voice, that the King has come to them, that the offer is there, the invitation is out, that you took on a crown of thorns to win us back. If we would only accept you, if we would only put our faith in you, Jesus, would you again give us, give us the courage to take that step? Father God, we look to you. We love you. Our prayer is that you are actually the one who would be a center of attention, that you would be in your right place with all truth, with all glory, because you are the one who, as we will continue to see, takes on the crown of glory, where you rule in all eternity, where we know that we sit in victory, not because of what we have done or what we can muster up, but what you have done. And so we look forward to your victory. We look forward to a relationship with you in your kingdom where you are king on the throne. Jesus, you rule and reign. We bow ourselves low. We get humble and meek just in the same way you do. As you got lowly and, and, and rode in on a donkey, Lord, would we humble ourselves again to say under the, the, the power of heaven, under the great God of all eternity, we choose to praise you. We choose to serve you. We choose to throw everything we have aside and we turn all attention and give all glory to you. Amen.